morning, everybody. We're going to go to Psalm 95. We are laying a foundation for understanding biblical worship. This is our third week in this series. And this morning we are going to explore principles about worship from Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. These are very interesting, very vibrant psalms. Psalm 95, we know that at least as back as far as I think the third century was being used as a call to worship in the Christian church, probably all the way back to the first century. It was being used in that way. Psalm 95, let's jump right in to verse 1. Oh, come, let us... Sing to the Lord. Though I'm not going to focus on it this morning, you can see the corporate nature of this already. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Now, this particular word sing here at the beginning of verse 1 doesn't focus on the musical part of singing. It doesn't mean sing quite like we usually use that word. It focuses on the joy and energy. The Hebrew word specifically refers to loud expressions of joy. Okay, so in verse 1, we could say, O come, let us, through singing, make loud expressions of joy to the Lord. And then verse 1 continues, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So we have here both a word that refers to loud expressions of joy, and a word that means to make a joyful noise. That second term can mean to rejoice, cheer, shout in triumph. Think of crowds cheering on a runner at the end of a marathon. Or this would have been a word used for the city swelling up in these cheers as the triumphant king returns from battle. That phrase, make a joyful noise, is also repeated in verse 2. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So the opening commands of this psalm exhort you and exhort me to bring energy, to bring joy, and even to bring volume to the Lord. So number one, God is worthy of our energetic expressions of joy. Now, that does not mean that all worship must be loud or excited because the Psalms also speak of cries and laments and even silence. Yet, God is worthy of our energetic expressions of joy. I smiled when I was reading the Presbyterian, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, and he noted, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that Presbyterians may have trouble with this shouting, but they might at least be able to say a loud amen. Oh, so I conveniently keep him talking about Presbyterians, and we won't ask how that might apply to us. So... <laughs> Come, let us shout to the Lord with energy. Let us loudly express our joy. That is exactly what Psalm 195 verse 1 says emphatically. Our second principle, number two, is that we should bring our worship directly to him with our words. Because verse 2 says that we should come into his presence with thanksgiving And make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now here we have the more usual word for songs. And so it becomes clear that worship is not just noise. It's words. We bring our worship directly to God, speaking to him with words of thanksgiving and praise. Because he is worthy of our words. He wants our words And verse 3 reminds us of some of the reasons why. For the Lord is a great God, 
and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So many reasons there why he is worthy, and we can't spend time to work through each part of this, but I tried to summarize it. Number three, God is worthy because he is our unrivaled creator, savior, and shepherd. Four key words there. First, he is unrivaled. None of the little gods, none of the false gods that we worship can ever rival the one true God. He is also creator. Verses 4 and 5 emphasize his creation and ownership of all things. He is also savior. Verse 1 called him the rock of our salvation. And in verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, In that spot, the word maker is probably referring to him making Israel as a people, making them his children. So that's a saving word too. And then in verse 7, he is shepherd. He claims us as his own sheep. He is our God. And he lovingly maintains our pasture. And then with his own hand, he individually counts the sheep, comforts the sheep, carries his sheep. So as the unrivaled creator, savior, and shepherd, he is worthy of our energetic, joyful words of worship. That's number three. Now, number four, God intends for worship to have vibrance through poetry and music. I'm going to show you one example in the text and then explain what I mean, and then I'll show you some more examples. In verse one, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That could just say, to our Savior. And that would be true. But instead it says, to the rock of our salvation. However, God is not literally a rock. So we might call this poetic language. Now, most people don't think they like poetry. 10% of adults say they read poetry. Um, And I think that's funny because everybody loves poetic language and almost everybody loves songs. And so it's funny that people think they don't like poetry. People love to say things in colorful and creative ways. People love illustrations and analogies. So even though we may not all love to read poems... God created all of us to enjoy vibrant, poetic language. And the greatest use of this is worship. So back to Psalm 95, verse 1. We could say here in verse 1, let us make a joyful noise to the Savior who is strong and stable and solid. And that would be true. But there's a vibrancy when we say to the rock of our salvation. Think of a baseball analogy. When a player hits a home run, there are certain mathematical measurements that you can use to express what happened. That home run had an 18-degree launch angle. It came off the bat at 110 miles per hour. And technology today allows them to put that stuff on the screen, you know, shortly after the home run. So you can see it if you're watching on TV. And, And sports fans do like stats, right? We like our numbers. But if a group of fans are gathered in a living room around a TV watching a game and their team hits a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning, most of them probably won't leap off the couch and say, 18 degrees! (laughs) Maybe somebody will. But most of them are going to say, they're going to pick their favorite home run verbiage. They're going to be like, what a blast! What a bomb! That thing went out like a rocket! Now, the home run was not a blast, nor was it a bomb, nor was it a rocket, nor is God literally a rock. But when we make a joyful noise about something, we tend to express ourselves in poetic language that connects with our hearts. 
Another example is in verse 4, where it says, In his hand are the depths. And the end of verse 5, His hands formed the dry land. God is a spirit who does not literally have hands, except for the resurrection hands of Jesus Christ. And yet thinking of human hands is a helpful way to illustrate that God made everything and God sustains everything. And it also fits then with verse 7 when it says that we are the sheep of his hand. Because it's impossible for us to exactly picture what it means for God, who is spirit, to create all things with his words, to sustain all things by simply the power of him being him, and to to care for us as sheep, it helps us to picture God creating with his hands, holding all creation in his hands, and then holding you like a sheep in his hands. This poetic language is expressing who God is in vibrant ways that connect with our hearts. So poetic wording is part of what makes this worship vibrant, but there's a lot more. There's also rhythm here in Psalm 95. The parallel structure in Hebrew creates this flow that rolls along, and God created us to love rhythm. Our favorite song texts have well-planned rhythm to their syllables that make it flow and stick in our minds. Now, in addition to rhythm, when we think of poetry today, we usually think of rhyme. Hebrew poetry didn't very often rhyme, but they did use various types of similar sounds and word plays and so forth. And most of our Christian songs today use all of those things uh, plus, plus rhyme. All of these things combine to create a poetic energy that we love. All right, here's a little test. You ready? I am subject. You are the subjects of a test. You just, you don't know what's coming. Just this week, someone in the church sent me an email that included this line. Well, not this week. It was the end of last week. Anyways, that included this line. I'm not the sage on the stage, just the guide on the side, or better, an old woolly sheep in the seat. All right, now I want to know, how many of you just smiled? Either on the outside or at least on the inside. Why is that? How do we get a whole room full of people to all like feel like smiling at the same time? It's because of how God created us, isn't it? Those little phrases use several different poetic elements to communicate the message in a, in a vibrant way. That person could have just said that very factually. But instead, they said it with poetic vibrance, and God made you to smile at something like that. God graciously created us so that all these different types of poetic beauty connect with our hearts and bring a real vibrance to our worship. And you know what we haven't even mentioned yet? Music. We've just been talking about words. We know from 1 Chronicles chapter 16 that Psalm 95 was sung by a choir and accompanied by harps, lyres, cymbals, and maybe trumpets too. Music adds many other layers of vibrance and beauty and energy on top of the vibrance of the words themselves. And God wired us for all of this. The best evolutionists can come up with is that it's something like good for mating. That's the best explanation they've got. God has a much better explanation that he wired you for joy and ultimately joyful worship of him. So here's a little project for you. Pick one of your favorite Christian songs, because we're journaling this sermon series, right? We're going home each week and we're writing some of the stuff we're learning. So here's your, here's your journaling project for you. Pick one of your favorite Christian songs. It doesn't matter which one it is. And then look carefully at the lyrics without the music. You don't, know, you don't have to know anything about poetry in a technical sense. Just ask yourself, how do these words make this song text vibrant? Do you see figurative language like rock? Did the songwriter use rhyme or other kind of connections between how words sound? 
Can you see how they, they plan syllables to fit into a rhythm so that even without music, when you read it, it's got this, this rhythm to it? Are there plays on words? Are there clever connections between ideas? As It's like, oh, that's cool. In verse 1, it says that. And then in verse 2, it says this. And as you do that, you might understand more clearly why you like that song. And then, once you've looked at the lyrics carefully to get a feel for why you like that, then add the music and ask, how is the music coming alongside, supporting this, and adding its own layers of vibrance to this? One of the things that, ultimately, I I hope that that kind of little project will fill you with praise to God, but it's also one of the things that helps make us very grateful for songwriters, who we completely ignore, generally. Uh, what, what a blessing they are to us as the church. All right, that's number four. Now, our final principle from the first seven verses, number five, we must come with great reverence and humility. In verse six, the writer chooses to use three different Hebrew words for kneeling or bowing down. It says, O come, let us worship. And that's that most common Hebrew word for worship that literally means to bow down. O come, let us bow down. Let us bow down and bow down. Two different words. Let us, next, kneel. The writer came up with three different Hebrew words that all mean to bow down or kneel to make the point to triply emphasize the humility and reverence that we must have as we come before God. Worship can be an energetic burst of loud praise, full of poetic elements, and paired with music that delights our hearts. But it must never be flippant, irreverent, or just for the fun of it. Just because it feels good. Just because it's a fun worship experience. We are redeemed sinners coming into the presence of the holy God to tell him that he is worthy of everything. Humility and reverence should characterize every moment of worship. You can think maybe of an example from what I gave earlier. Would it be possible for someone to decide that saying a really loud amen is kind of fun and like it gets people's attention and maybe people will kind of smile at you and you're the guy who like amens louder than anybody else. And so it kind of becomes a game. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really go for it on this one and see what people think. Is that at all appropriate for God? Now, contrast that with the amen that comes loudly out of someone's heart because they're so excited about the truth. And whatever anybody else thinks about it, it's just, it just bursts right out of their heart. You see how one of those is appropriate. It's the same thing. One of those is appropriate. One of those is turning worship into a game for the fun of it. And God is, that is, that is, that is so disrespectful of who God is. And this then leads us then to the final section of Psalm 95, beginning at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the principle is number six. Worship must always lead to humble listening and obeying. These verses are referring to two similar situations when the Israelites grumbled against the Lord. One of these happened not long after they came out of Egypt. The other happened more than 40 years later, shortly before they entered the promised land. And in both instances, they said things like, God isn't here. 
We don't know where God is. God isn't taking care of us. God has abandoned us here in the wilderness. It'd have been better if we had stayed as slaves back in Egypt. They didn't trust him. They didn't listen to him. They didn't believe his promises. And so verse 10 says, God loathed them. It was disgusting that they would so quickly turn away from God after all that he had done for them. And as a result, an entire generation was not allowed to enter the rest of the promised land. That's from the first time this happened. And then the second time this happened, Moses and Aaron themselves were not allowed to enter the rest of the promised land. You can write a note to Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which quote from Psalm 95 and talk about our rest in Christ. But uh, we can't look at that this morning. But here's the question we need to ask as we look at Psalm 95 as a whole. Why does Psalm 95 shift so quickly from exuberant worship to a very stern warning? Why? It is because Israel shifted very quickly from exuberant worship to ignoring God. And today, as verse 7 says, today we must not do the same thing. There is, in this section of the Psalms, it's, you can parallel this, starting back, I think, in Psalm 90, you can parallel this section of the Psalms with a section of Exodus that recounts a key portion of Israel's history, including including the Exodus. And the joyful worship at the beginning of Psalm 95 can parallel Exodus 15, which we looked at last Sunday, which was their joyful worship after they crossed the Red Sea. So think about Psalm 95 and Exodus 15, the beginning of Psalm 95 and Exodus 15, sitting side by side. Then the first incident at Massah and Meribah that he's referring to here happened less than a week later. Exodus chapter 17, the beginning of Psalm 95 and Exodus 15, the end of Psalm 95, Exodus 17, less than a week later. That's how fast Israel went from vibrant worship to ignoring God, grumbling against him and turning away from him. So the point in Psalm 95 is to warn us about doing the same thing. Our joyful worship must be combined with a humble heart that is eager to listen to the Lord and obey him. Dr. Boyce writes, Worship without obedience is mere sham. It calls down the judgments of God the Father and Jesus, who once said, This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. This is one reason why it's appropriate that we combine singing to the Lord with the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings. Once the music has gone away, once the emotional intensity has come back down, are we still then going to listen to the God whom we just celebrated? Will we obey him? If not, the worship is more likely to bring God disgust than joy. And we may be in danger of not truly entering God's rest in Christ. That sounds very strong, but it makes, makes sense, does it not? That if we were to sing together as we did this morning, that God reigns. And then as soon as the music stops, we have no interest in God reigning over us. Something is severely wrong in that picture. All right. Would you like to sing mid-sermon this morning? We're going to sing Psalm 95. We don't have time to talk about psalm singing this morning. We'll get to that maybe this summer, but we're singing from the, the new Psalter. And uh, uh, it's common in psalm singing to use the same melody multiple times. We're used to living in a world where every song has a unique melody. But when it comes to singing 150 psalms, and in a psalter, you often have more than one setting of the same psalm. Um, it's common in psalm singing to use the same tune. And 
um, that has advantages and disadvantages, but one of the advantages of it is it just kind of helps you settle in and focus on the text um, of the song. So we're going to do that this morning. We are going to use the familiar tune of Come Thou Fount, and we're going to use it to sing a setting of Psalm 95, and then at the end, we're going to use it to sing a setting of uh, Psalm 96. And what we want to do is take this as an opportunity to think about the psalm, because what we're going to see here is not the exact text of the psalm, but a a hymn writer who took Psalm 95 and and put it into a form that we can sing uh, like this. So it gives us a chance to think through Psalm 95 again. Now, Psalm 95, as we just saw, ends very soberly. And so appropriately, the psalm that we're going to sing, the psalm setting, ends very soberly. What we're going to do when we reach the end is we're going to sing the first verse of another song that we know to the same tune, which is, Lord, we hear your word with gladness. So when the psalm ends with this stern warning about how we must listen to him, we're going to then follow up with one verse of uh, saying to the Lord, we worship you for your word and we want to hear it and, and obey it. I'll, I'll pause this in between before we get to that, but just follow along and it will make sense. Go ahead, let's stand. Take it easy. Now with joyful exultation, let us to the Lord sing praise. To the rock of our salvation, thou hosannas let us raise. Thankful tribute gladly bring Let us come before him. doesn't come meet, doesn't mean come meet him. What does it mean? Yeah, suitable, appropriate. Let us bring to him what he is, of what he is due, what he is worthy of. Let us come with the reverence that he deserves. To the Lord such might revealing, let us come with reverence meet. Before our Maker kneeling, let us worship at His feet. He is our own God who leads us, we the people of His care. With a shepherd's hand He feeds us, as His flock in pastures fair. And now soberly, While he offers peace and pardon, let us hear his voice today. Blessed if we our hearts should pardon, we should perish in the way. Blessed to us so unbelieving, he in judgment should declare. now we'll sing and say the opposite of that, right? Sing it if it is true from your heart. Lord, we hear your word with gladness and holy celebration for your word. We worship you. Lord, we hear your word with gladness. You have spoken, we rejoice. 
life and freedom. Help us make their truth our choice. Now in holy celebration, for your word we worship you. Spoken, written, known in Jesus, ours today to prove on Amen. You can be seated. And let's go to Psalm 96. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, let's do that every sermon. Stand up, sing in the middle, wake up. All right, we're going to read all the way through Psalm 96 now. And at, at first glance, it might sound similar to Psalm 95. It has similar calls to worship and a similar vibrance. But there is a very different emphasis in Psalm 96. So watch for that different emphasis as we read. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So I am sure that you can see that what is especially unique here is the global emphasis with repeated references to the earth and the nations and and all the people. So three more principles from Psalm 96, number seven, God must receive worship from every person. Verse two says, tell of his salvation. Verse three says, declare his glory. Because verse four, he is great and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. So, idolatry is not okay. Worship is not optional. The worship of the one true God is not optional. Every person must greatly praise God and fear him above all gods. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. There's that word meat that we just sang. Same idea. The glory that he is worthy of. All people must give God his due. Every person. All right. So earlier I mentioned Psalm 95 and Exodus 15, the song of celebration after they cross the Red Sea. The end of Psalm 95 and Exodus 17, Masa and Meribah, and they're grumbling against the Lord. And no, no, God's not here and God's not taking care of us. Psalm, Exodus 18, the very next chapter, tells the story of Jethro, Moses' Midianite father-in-law, who is, I think, the first person recorded in the Old Testament to come believe in Israel's God, though he was not a Jew. He is, in a sense, the first convert to Judaism in the Old Testament, and it's in the next chapter. And so it's kind of like Psalm 95 in the beginning of Exodus and Exodus 15, the end of Psalm 95 and Exodus 17. And then Psalm 96 brings you to Jethro in Exodus 18 as the nations began to come to worship God. 
God must receive worship from every person. This means for you and I that we want to speak of the greatness of God whenever we can. Sometimes that means getting to share the whole gospel with someone, but sometimes it's a smaller opportunity to just mention the greatness or the goodness of God, to testify to your doctor at that appointment that God is taking care of you, or to point to God's glory into creation, or to point to his goodness in your own life. There are little ways that we can declare his glory among the nations, and sometimes we get big opportunities too. This also reminds us that worship is the desired end of missions and evangelism. That people would turn from their idols to come worship the true God through Jesus Christ. And that would mean giving their entire life to God, of course, as we've talked about already in this worship series. But it would also mean gathering together with God's people in corporate worship and opening their mouths to worship Him. So look at Psalm 96 verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. You said that this morning, didn't you? A whole bunch of times in our song service. All right, so last Sunday, Eric said that what we're doing here on Sunday morning is weird. And uh, what he meant when he said that was for you to be somewhere other than, you know, on the beach or out in the desert having fun or something on a Sunday morning in our culture is, is, is weird for you to be here doing this. Now, uh, there are other things we're doing that aren't weird, like loud expressions of joy about something. That's actually not weird, right? Now, singing it may be a little more odd for some people, but people do loudly express their joy in things. But I tell you one thing that is very weird that we're doing this morning. Saying that God reigns. Think back to the identity seminar three or four weeks ago. I own me. I define me. I discover me by looking inside of me. I do me. That's what society pounds into everyone. And that is the exact opposite of the Lord reigns. Society says, I Rain, and they sing about it. Just look at all the Disney sing-along videos. It's all, I reign, when the truth is that the Lord reigns. And so when a person is truly born again, when they are humbled about their sin and come to Jesus in faith and repentance, they will then come join us in corporate worship and they will say with us, the Lord reigns. And that is huge because they had once believed I reign because every person is born as a sinner who believes I reign. Just look at a toddler and you know they believe it. But when God transforms our hearts, we gladly say the Lord reigns. Are you one of those people who has turned to God from idols and now you joyfully say God reigns? That is the miracle of new birth. And every person must give God the worship he deserves as they are born again through Jesus Christ. Number eight, related to that then, the emptiness of the gods of the nations must be exposed. The emptiness of the gods of the nations must be exposed. We won't repent of our idols until we realize that they are worthless and that they are destructive. Verse five, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. This is one of those places where in Hebrew, the writer was using poetic vibrance and it's, we can't quite translate it into English because what he's using here is a word play. The word gods in Hebrew sounds like the word for worthless, but we can't, the, the, I saw one Bible scholar who suggested that the closest we can get in English is the gods of the world are all godlets. <laughs> We don't, we don't have a diminutive form of the word God, but the gods of the peoples are all godlets. They're not real gods. They're just these little worthless things. So again, verses five and six, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So turn 
from idols to worship God alone. To see the emptiness of your idols and the majesty of God. Note also in verse 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. There is a question about what that phrase splendor of holiness means. Um, You might be familiar with the the King James phrase, beauty of holiness. It's kind of well-known phrase. Um, But the question is whether that phrase is talking about us or talking about God. In other words, is it referring to the holy garments that the priests wore? And so it's saying that we, we need to worship God in in holiness as holy people? Or is it talking about the, the splendor of God's holiness? Um, and I think it's in this context, I, my opinion is that it's more likely that it's referring to the splendor of God's holiness. That in light of the fact that the idols of the nations are worthless idols, they need to worship God in the light of his true splendor. They need to know God in his majesty and glory and worship him in the splendor of his holiness. This week I was reading Isaiah chapter 46, and it has this wonderful contrast where it says, uh, your gods, your idols that, that we give ourselves to are idols that you have to carry around. But then it goes on to remind us that God, the true God, carries us. It's such a great picture. Are you going to have gods that you have to carry? Or are you going to have a God who carries you? The emptiness of the gods of the nations must be exposed so that they can see the glory of the true God. I think of the children who show up at the hospital in Togo with cuts and burns and scars from the witch doctors. Oh, that they might know the true God and not these damaging idols. Or think of the American idols, the addictions to sex and approval and autonomy and pleasure and money. Oh, that you could know the true God who carries you instead of sucking you dry, like all these addictions are doing. How do we we play a role in this, in number eight? How do we expose the emptiness of the gods of the nations? Well, Sometimes we might be able to talk about it. Sometimes we might be able to challenge others about the things that they're really pouring their lives into that keep coming up empty. Um, but even when we don't get to do that, maybe, maybe the most important way we rebuke the idols of the nations is by refusing to worship them ourselves. In the New Testament, the last words of the letter of 1 John are, keep yourselves from idols. When we, when we worship them, we are giving them value. And so we devalue them. We expose them when by God's strength, by his spirit and his grace, we say, you are not worthy of any of me. You're not getting any of me. You're not getting my mind. You're not getting my eyes. You're not getting my money. You're not getting my time. You're just a godlet. And I've got a true God to give myself to. Number nine, God is worthy of worship because he will be the world's perfect king. So the last verses of Psalm 96 have an emphasis on justice. The word judge is used in verse 10 and then twice in uh, verse 13. And so when I first read that, I expect the point to be that if we are idolaters, God is going to come as judge, the true God, and we better get ready because he's going to come in judgment upon idolaters. That's what I expected to say, and that would be true, of course. But I don't think that's actually the point here because remember this begins in verse 10 by saying, the Lord reigns. And at the end of Verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. That means he's a fair judge. He's a good king. And in verse 13, the end of verse 13, it says, he will judge the peoples in faithfulness. He will be a king who reigns in faithfulness. And so, uh, and in between then, in verses 11 and 12, we see that creation is going to worship when he comes and makes all things right. So I think what's going on here is that people 
long for all that is wrong with this world to be repaired. And, and, you know, the way things are today, they most often look to government to do that, so they wish they could live under good government that would make all things right. Can someone please fix the, the fentanyl crisis, the, the mass murders, the abuse, the depression, the crisis at the border, inflation, Ukraine, you name it. That is why people get so passionate about politics Maybe in this election, we'll be able to get in power the people who will make things right. And so the point here at the end of Psalm 96 is that you should worship God because only he can make everything right, and he will. I'm not saying that elections don't matter. That's not my point at all. My point is that to people who are looking for, could there finally be rulers who make everything right and do everything in faithfulness and do everything in justice? You need to come worship God because only he can rule in perfect justice and faithfulness. And he will. If you long for all things to be made right, then worship the one true God. Derek Kidner writes about Psalm 96 at the end of it. This is a prophecy of perfect government. Alec Matir writes, this is about the whole world at last under the perfect king. He is the only one who can make all things right, and so he is worthy of global worship. Back to verses 11 and 12. The creation itself knows this. The seas, the fields, the trees are ready to celebrate when God comes and makes it right. Now, again, that's being poetic. It's not saying that the trees and fields literally have consciousness like we do as humans. But it is interesting. I think the Bible, one of the things the Bible is suggesting sometimes when it talks like this is that creation, the creation has, has been the first person witnesses to all of our human nonsense, right? If creation could speak, after all it's seen in these thousands of years of human history, it would probably say to us, hey, knuckleheads, can't you see that your idols are just making it worse? You've been chasing idols for thousands of years and it's never worked. If you want things to be right, then turn to the Lord who reigns. We can't wait for him to come and end all your nonsense. We've been under the curse ever since you messed it up. If we turn from idols to worship God alone, then we can anticipate the day when he's going to come again to make all things right. And on that day, we're going to worship like we've never worshiped before because he's going to make us right too. So Psalm 96 is a global call to worship. And then as Psalm 97 verse 1 begins, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. And so each one of us must be a person who first hears that call to worship and responds to it, repents of our idols, and turns to the one true God alone through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. And then we become voices of that call. We must become people who then call others to see the emptiness of their, the things they're living for, to see the glory of who God is in Jesus, and to turn, turn to him. All right, you ready to sing Psalm 96? This is a new, a new text of this written just a few years ago. We're going to use the exact same melody that we, that we used before. So let's stand again and we'll allow this setting of Psalm 96 to remind us of, of what we just learned and to help us express it back to the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing to Him, O all the earth. Bless the name of God forever. Sing salvation's wondrous word. Tell His glory to the nations of His wonders and those praise. He is Lord of all creation. Great and great Other gods fade as a veil. 
dwelling strength and splendor God exalted and adored give him glory all ye people give him glory to his name in his temple as an offering all his power and might into our study of worship, and I pray that your view of worship is getting broader, more than kind of the narrow way the word worship is used today, and I also hope it's getting deeper, that these truths are pressing down into your heart, and God is helping you look at how you can worship him and give him what, what he is due. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the richness of a hymn book in our Bibles, that that gift that that is. We've talked about so many of your gifts this morning. We praise you for those things. And of course, the greatest gift is a Savior who would die for people who tend to worship idols. So we thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ today. And we pray that you would continue to tune our hearts to be joyful worshipers and that you would let us then be voices to the nations, both by rejecting the things our world is living for and also by speaking of your greatness and goodness at every opportunity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.